Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uh, stage one of the Alula tour today, David. I know, it starts at 12.30. We're all excited. Yeah, we, well, we thought it'd be wall-to-wall coverage, which it deserves to be. It deserves to be. For just to punish the commentators. I know. Yeah. Talking of which, you're off to the UAE tour. I know, I know, going to UAE tour, my first time commentary. I've done, have I? No, you've never, never done, done anything in the Middle East commentary. You've been out there often enough. Qatar. You? I did the Qatar World Championships. Oh, you did for the BBC? Yeah. And missed the bit. Oh, go on, oh. tell that story. So I was over to do the um, Chris Boardman couldn't do it because he normally does it for the BBC. So they asked me to go across. Chris had something more important. Than yeah, something yeah, more important. More lucrative, do, probably. Probably riding in Scotland. <laughs> um, and so I went across there, and obviously it's day all day coverage. Uh, it was a painful race, as you can imagine, in Qatar, pan flat. But it went out in this huge square. They did like 100 k's, turned right, and it was going to be crosswind at this point for about 30 k's, and they're going to turn right and come back again. And the thing about those races is the roads are dead straight. Like 60 kilometers in one direction, yeah. right-hand turn, yeah. 60 kilometers in the other direction. And the weather is entirely predictable. Oh, completely. You just look at it and you know, pinpoint exactly what's going to happen. And I was telling them the night before. It's so there was no doubt. No doubt. And I was kind of sitting there going through the painful preamble. And uh, actually genuinely excited about this coming because the wind was up and you could see everyone was nervous and it was going to happen. And about 10 minutes before the right-hand turn, the producer came in and said, we need to take you out to do a segment to camera. And I was like, what do you mean? Not now. I was like, not now. And I was like, no, no, no. And I, I, obviously, you can imagine me, I kicked up a bit of a fuss and got all petulant. Well, especially 2015, David. Especially 2015, me. Hmm. And uh, sure enough, I couldn't win the battle. So they took me out and I was out there for 25 minutes, 30 minutes doing this, came back in. All the echelons had happened. The group had formed and it was done. And then that was it to the finish. I was gutted. <laughs> I didn't even get to see I never even saw it. But yeah. So that was my one experience doing the Worlds and commentating in the Far East. But what, what can I expect, Ned? Well, you're going to the UAE tour. It's been strange, that job, hasn't it? Because I kind of flounced away from doing it a couple of years. I used to do it quite often. I, I used to do the Dubai yeah. tour, then the Abu Dhabi tour. Yeah. And then when it merged, I think yeah. I did at least one edition, if not two, of mm-hmm. the UAE tour, mm-hmm. which combines you know, the two races. And then I just got a bad conscience about it three, yeah, three, four, three four years ago. Four years ago, kind of been the COVID year, maybe it's, tw- I can't remember. It was 2021 actually, wasn't it? Um, and I, and I, I kind of vowed, I've, you know, I'm done with that. I've done yeah. it often enough. And my curiosity yeah. about that part of the world, which is on one level, uh, a kind of a really morally compromised part of the world yeah. in all sorts of ways, politically mm-hmm. and culturally wrong in mm-hmm. lots of ways. Um, but, if you've not been there before, and the first few times you go, it's kind of fascinating oh, as well. Incredibly fascinating because yeah. it's so different, so yeah. otherworldly, so odd. Yeah. Um, but my curiosity by that point had been sated, mm. so I said I'm not going to do that job anymore. So it kind of created a vacancy or two. Mm-hmm. Having I did that edition of the race with Pete Kenyuk. Nice. Um, that was great fun with Pete. Yeah. We got the giggles so so many times because they are just empty days, as you'll yeah. find out. <laughs> um, and then um, uh, Declan Quigley. Mm-hmm came in as the lead commentator to it. So you'll be working with Declan. So, but then the first year that I didn't do it, Declan was partnered with Pete. Yeah. And they worked together last year. Mm-hmm. 
at the UAE tour. But this year, Pete can't go. I know, he's direct sport to you thing. So he's, he's being DSing. Yeah. So we are kind of like doing this weird job leapfrog thing. Yeah. Um, you did a very good bit of negotiating. Thank you, Ned. <laughs> yeah. I called their bluff and they called you, my bluff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they're not listening to this. <laughs> you, try, you tried to box yourself out of doing the job <laughs> by placing an unreasonable financial demand and were stunned when they acquiesced. <laughs> so now I'm going to really enjoy so it. So now you've got to go do it. <laughs> yeah. But it'd be good. No, if you've not been, I mean, you've, have you looked at the course? No. I have. Not. I was looking this morning, have actually. You? Yeah. Highlights? It's actually not bad. There's a time trial on the second day. Team time Individual trial. team time trial. I think it might actually. I didn't even look if it was team time trial. Okay. I presume so because it's always team out there. But it might be individual. Twelve yeah, k's. Been individual then ones, the yeah. third day they finish on Jabal Jais. Yeah. And then on the final day they got that other steep. Climb. Jabal Hafid. Yeah. Yep. So it's actually interesting. It's not like five days of sprinting and there's yeah. stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. So Although I mean the Jabal Jais and the Jabal Hafid stages are just like 140 kilometers of. Yeah, I've ridden that. Actually, Desert Jabal Jais. Have you? Yeah. Yeah, I was there a few years ago and rode it. Then you get to the Hajar Mountains and then yeah. it just goes up. Yeah. They're quite hard climbs, aren't they? Yeah, that's just this, it's amazing, isn't it? That road up there, it's oh, like an auto absolutely route kind of going stunning. up the mountain. Beautiful. Incredibly beautiful. But yeah, it's not very hard for pros because it's kind of six, five, six percent, I think, like 20Ks. Yeah, quite long. Mm. And and it's one of those, yeah, it's just high pace. I just hope all Tade's there. Well, he didn't do it last year, did he? Pete put on our um, WhatsApp group a picture of him in his press conference a few days ago. It was like he's looking skinny. Yeah. And he does look skinny. Yeah. It's like yeah. I saw a little... Sl- By the way, you're listening to Never Strays Far. Oh, I'm yes. Ned Bolting. And I'm David Miller. Okay, l- let's do the theme tune. Yeah. <laughs> decided it's i think we should like intro and outro yeah, the pod we should actually just yeah. get into the habit of being pro. pros about yeah. it but i'd obviously forgotten mm. so five minutes in i remember yeah. um going back to today oh and mine is pete because we're in person in oh Rona. yeah 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 and we just yeah. yeah i've sent him a message saying do you want to join off on a yeah. link but let's just yeah. check no i've checked already no he's not he's not no. come back so it's just you and me yeah. um um yeah, going back to Tade, I think yesterday, a little clip, I think he did a little bit of a press conference didn't he yeah he and did. i just saw a little bit clipped up where someone said to him i did a triple yeah, some, or someone said to him, what would you prefer to win, the Giro or the Tour? Ooh. And he said, uh, the World Championships. <laughs> and then oh, smiled. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> ah, he's just funny, isn't he? Yeah, he is, just doesn't care. He's brilliant. Yeah, I love yeah. Taddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, hopefully he'll be there. Then that'll make my day. I don't think he will be. Oh, I don't think he will be. I think it'll be Yates. Yates. So it's oh, Yates' yeah, it race, Yates. isn't it? It so is So he loves, he loves Jubel Hafid. Does he? Yeah, he's won that a few times. And the only person who's kind of beaten him... Up to Belfast, he's been Tade. Hey, by the way, but now they're teammates. Our uh, our old boy from um, Tour of Britain, Stevie Williams. Yeah, that was Tour insane Down What he did at Tour Down Under. So his his career has just suddenly blossomed. Lit up. Yeah, it really has lit up. And, Last he, and he set up the Cadell. I was reading the race report for the Cadell, our brother Cadell Classic. Yeah, the Great Open Road Race. That's it. And um, it was Stevie Williams that essentially set up the victory. For who who won it? I can't remember. What, teammate? Yeah, um, must be. Right. If it was a teammate or somebody used, Steve Williams was kind of setting it all up. Right. And, um, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, he was dominant in the final couple of Ks. Yeah. So yeah, he's on fire. It, what's interesting about him is I think he has, so he's, he's had to overcome a, ser- a series of kind of like relatively low key, but obviously very t- affecting injuries mm-hmm. that blighted his career development. 
But as a result, I think, of kind of rebooting and becoming healthy, he has, uh, and I wonder if you can think of other riders who've done this, but he has discovered things about himself as a rider and changed his attributes as a rider um, so significantly that he's just become a different character on the bike. Huh. So he super tall, but like you said, well, not super tall, but tall, skinny, climber. Yeah. And um, I think the first two or three years of his career, that's how he saw himself. Mm. So he'd be the guy, and but not with respect, not at the very highest level, obviously. Mm. So he'd be... Is that Arden's type of climber? No, I, I don't think so, no. Oh. I mean, maybe now he is. No, maybe oh, now he is, okay, so he was he pure was a, climber. He was pure climber climber, but ah. not quite at the level. So he'd be kind of like one of those frustrating Well, that's riders. a perfect Ardennes climber. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. So now he's realizing that he's an Ardennes climber. But also a stage racer. One week a stage GC, racer. A GC, one week stage racer, is what he always thought himself. But he would, he'd, like when the group was down to 12, he'd be the first rider from that 12 yeah. rider group to get dropped. Do you know what I mean? Not yeah. quite, so not quite at the right level. But he's come back, and the first sort of flickerings that he changed... Um, the way he races, uh, I gleaned from um, Fred Wright. Because the day that Fred won his only to date race win was the mm. British National Championships last year, which was on a really hard course in the Northeast. Is that his only race win? Uh, so far. Wow. I know. Um, the group got whittled down, the race got shredded, um, mm. and the hard men, if you like, yeah. came to the fore. And Stevie was one of them. And he, was, he wasn't just kind of doing a, I'm a GC racer, what am I doing here? Yeah. He was racing like a real kind of one day racing beast. Huh. And he was attacking and he was making mm -hmm. life difficult. In the end, he kind of attacked himself and blew up and couldn't live with Fred on the yeah. final kind of, you know, didn't quite have the requisite kick to beat mm. Fred. But that's fair enough, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, but Fred came back from that race and said, I've never seen Stevie Williams race like that. Huh. I've never seen him behave like that on a bike. Yeah. And now he keeps backing it up because the way he won that final stage in the GC, I obviously I only saw the kind of tore down under, isn't it? So mm. I wasn't actually going to watch it. No, no, no God, no. <laughs> but I saw the last 500 meters. Yeah. And he comes to the line in a group of sort of four or five, doesn't he? Mm. Including some really experienced kind of punchy riders and just absolutely pumps them all in a sprint. Wow. So he's got a lot about him. Yeah. And he's definitely one to watch <laughs> for the coming year. He might be at UE. Oh, good. I hope so. He might be there. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what have yeah. you been up to? I mean, so we're in the old chapter three offices. Yeah, we're in chapter three, factor offices in Droda. Factor, chapter three, yeah. And um, I've been, I had a lovely start to the year, actually, following my uh, New Year resolutions. Yes. Um, not, overdoing, not overdoing the sport. I've actually been on this Zwift FTP program, which is... What does that mean? Uh, it's like you, on Zwift, you have all these different training programs you can do that... It, you then just follow. So I'm doing like their 10, 12 week builder, which is just like four or five times a week, one hour in Zwift. And then it's like totally doable. Is that because you've ruined your, your foot? Your, it's better than my wrecked? foot, but is I'm it? being cautious. I'm not running every day anymore. I kind right. of run every other day now. Right. Unlike Pete, who's ripping it now. Do you guys both upload your, your things, your runs on Strava? We're all there. We're everywhere. Everyone can see our we're, we're public. Because someone on the Twitter said, Bolton, you need to up your game because... Oh, yeah. David are ripping, ripping up Strava, you, you setting just, all the records. You just wear a Casio digital watch, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you don't, you're not tracking your data. <laughs> not, not no data tracking. <laughs> no yeah, data so tracking. that's been a lovely start to the year, and um, just kicking it here in Drona before it starts to travel a lot. We've got the UCI thing next week. You're still going? No, you're not going. I'm gutted. I forgot to put it in the diary. Oh no. Are you going? I'm going. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm really quite jealous. I'm really annoyed. I've double booked myself. Yeah. And I'm going with my friend Rob, who is one of my oldest friends. Mm -hmm. He's an, he works on London Underground. 
right. in the ticket office. Um, but he is an autodidact. Okay. Of the next level. Yeah. So Rob, who doesn't speak French, um, speaks French to the extent that um, he got hold of a original French manuscript of the diaries of a, a soldier fighting in the Napoleonic Wars. Huh. Immaculate, very detailed diaries about this campaign and what this soldier experienced, this officer, yeah. that have existed in the French language but have never been translated. Rob doesn't speak French. He spent a year translating it. Wow. With a dictionary. With a dictionary. Do you know what I mean? Like old school. Not, not entering it into Google, the Googles or the AI or anything, yeah. ChatGPT. Word for word going, like, can you imagine how hard that must be? Very hard. Uh, he doesn't speak French. So every second or third word, completely new to him, had to look it up. So it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Huh. I can't imagine translating something oh, like that. That's it's mad. It's just mad. Um, and so he's published, <coughs> sorry, he's published that book. I'll get to the point of why I'm telling you this story. Um, he published those memoirs and he's published, I think, two or three books about the Napoleonic Wars. Huh. He is obsessed with two things in life, actually. Three things in life. Four things in life, possibly. He used to be a goalkeeper for Reading. No way. In the early 90s. Huh. He, was, he was Reading's third choice goalkeeper and never made a first team appearance. Brilliant. <laughs> Red- Brilliant. <laughs> His third choice goalkeeper, Reading, in the early 90s. So if you happen to be a Reading fan, you might remember Rob Bassett. Except you won't, unless you only ever watch the reserves play. Jeez. Um... Then he had an injury which ended his football career. Um, his other two obsessions in life are Jimi Hendrix, because he was in a Rob was in a band that were an indie band in the early '90s that were really quite big and supported some really big bands on big tours <laughs> called Orange Deluxe. Right, right. So he's a really good bass player, yeah. and he's obsessed with Jimi Hendrix. He only ever wears, and I'm not. This isn't like an exaggeration or anything. He only ever wears Jimi Hendrix T-shirts. Oh my god. That's it. When he's except for his London Underground. Yeah. uniform that he has to wear for work but when he's not working he only ever wears Jimi Hendrix t-shirts what an eccentric totally lovely man and his other and his other obsession is Napoleon and he knows mm, I, I, as much as any Napoleonic expert in the world about Napoleon that's brilliant so this is why I've double booked myself I Rob and I have been talking about well I've been talking about going to Paris with Rob just for a night for years and years and years, and doing a Napoleonic tour of Paris, except oh. he's my guide. Oh, wow. So, we're gonna, so I'm taking him to Paris on Wednesday and Thursday of next, of next week, when you'll be in Aigle yeah. doing the commentary course for the UCI, which I just completely forgot about. And on day one, we're going to go up the um, Arc de Triomphe to the top, which is a thing I've never done. Yeah. Have you done that? Uh, no, I've never done it. So I'm really looking forward to that. That'd and then we're going to walk around a lot of Haussmann um, Paris, and then... Day two, we're going to go to Les Invalides and look at the tomb. And Rob's just going to fill me with knowledge about Napoleon for two days. That's awesome. And we're going to stay in... Uh, Alisson. The Alisson. Oh, I love it. That's where, we, that's where I'll be, yeah. Oh, that's good then. Oh, that's better than UCI commentators but, seminar. But, uh, but yeah, so this is a mad thing, isn't it? I, yeah. I'm really curious to see... So the UCI so context... they invited us in November, didn't they, to um, Egler, the <coughs> UCI HQ in Switzerland, for a commentator's seminar... And they're basically, I mean, it makes sense because the amount of times in commentary we're in the blind about concussion rules, the safety protocols, kind of what they're actually doing. Yeah, we're guessing. A we're bit, guessing. We? Yeah. And, but, and I think UCI take, obviously take it a lot in the neck because mm. a lot of things, that, their initiatives aren't visible or we don't know what processes are in place. So they, actually, I'll, I'll look it up and um, I can give you a run through of what we'll be talking about. But it's. Um, but do you think it's going to be a two way? 
process that you'll be able to... We get questions at the end. That's in the... Um, so is it, but do you think it's top-down? Are they, are they saying, okay, that, so this is what we want you to know and understand? Or do you think they are, they'll say to you, is there so, anything we can do to improve ours? Well, yeah, exactly. So we have um, introduction and welcome speech from Peter Van Den Ebel, UCI Sports Director. Who? I don't know. Okay. I see exactly. So we're going to learn who these people are. Yep. Then we've got what's new in professional road cycling. I wonder what is new. Yeah. Yep. Get, uh, explain the extreme weather protocol. Yep. Um, which I helped help create, so that's no bother. Um, <laughs> medical update and concussion. Yep. Getting that. Yep. Uh, safety, improving the safety of road cycling and innovation. You're going to be crammed with knowledge. Uh, yeah. And then a Q&A open discussion at the end of the first day. Then uh, the next day we've got focus on Paris 2024 and Zurich 2024. Um, Anti-doping and technological fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, then we've got UCI TV support commissaires. And visit of the VAR vans. Okay. And then a Q&A That's again. going to be so underwhelming. That's going to be super underwhelming. Because we've seen it from the outside, haven't yeah, we? And it's we've not seen how they, and, and we also know... Well, kind of, what's going to be inside. Yeah. An EVS machine and a monitor. And we've been watching the whole thing as well. And we had to take <laughs> them about an hour afterwards to decode what they've seen. <laughs> so, but anyway, they're trying. So No, they are trying. They are trying. And uh, I'll have some nuggets of information, right. I guess. Okay, the thing that I want you to achieve... Yeah. While you're there for those two days mm-hmm. at the UCI, is get them, please, to institute this protocol, for want of a better word, where if there's any doubt about the outcome of a race, in, in other words, a, an infringement in a sprint, mm-hmm. they need to, the moment they've crossed the line, they need to let everyone know that the UCI commissaires are, are in, have launched an inquiry. So the podium gets frozen. Yeah, yeah so that we know that we know because that's the thing we we sometimes think. What did you say about horse racing? They do it's it. a horse racing thing. Yeah, if you go to a, if you go to a, 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 and it happens every other race, stewards inquiry, and it happens within seconds of the finishing line. It'll be a bell will ring, the bookies won't pay out. Nice, right? And there'll be stewards inquiry. Yeah, and it'll last minutes, maybe three, four. See, but five the interesting minutes. thing with that is, is because it's the bookies that have kind of probably. It's the economical model of horse racing yeah. that has dictated such stringent process. Yeah. We don't have that, do we? Any motivation beyond the fans. So no. perhaps they need to take that lesson and apply it. I think so, and I can't see the downside to it. No, no, no. It's whatsoever. just a clarity of message. Just have a bet, thing come on the screen. Literally, a little yeah. thing, an icon needs to appear yeah. on the screen. And just have a clock ticking down. And, a clock, and it needs to have a clock ticking down. Yeah, like 10 minutes. Yeah. And it's kind of... I mean, I guess, I guess, well, this is, again, stuff that I suppose actually, I literally just use the word guess, so I'm guessing Mm -hmm. that there is a um, procedure about uh, objections. Yes. Also, so that it may be that a race finishes and the commissaires themselves haven't seen anything that merits an inquiry. So it's not Alexander Vinokurov kind of... But then Vino turns up and goes, that was unfair. And climbs in the van. But he only does it an hour... Yeah, or yeah. A half an hour after the end of the race, yeah. which isn't good enough. No. So if Vino wants to make a complaint, he's got five minutes to do it. Yeah, nice. Nice. Don't know why we're singling out Vino, but it's Vino. No, because that was the last example it of the was. tour last year. And it all got a bit antsy. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I agree. Okay, I'll bring what that up. What was that stage? What was it? I'm trying to remember. Oh, you know what? It was one when... No, it wasn't. It was Cavendish. It was Cavendish. It would have... 
But it, it was, was it was Vino's Cavendish manager, obviously, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's only it just was Cavendish, but so I'm just it was Philip. It, it was the Bordeaux stage. It was uh, yeah, when it was, he was second. It was second because it was so where Philipson. there was Philipson had made a kind of cut across before. But it wasn't, trying, no, wasn't a thing. It wasn't. But that was the th- that's right. That's why it was such a big story, yeah. wasn't it? Because we were sort of teetering on the brink of yeah. Cavendish breaking the Merckx record by default. Yeah. By right. Philipson being unfairly relegated. Yeah. And it never happened. But there no. was that kind of like semi-bundle around the around the VAR yeah. van, wasn't there? Yeah. Like, but, but the VAR van itself was like those kind of world record attempts to cram as many people as you can into a telephone box. Oh, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just a, a white <laughs> man, like it's, yeah, a white van man. Yeah. Um, oh, so you're going? I'd assumed that you just I wasn't going forgotten to, about it, as and well. then. Nicole, I'm so sorry you're going on your own. I know I was actually quite excited about seeing you there. That's yeah. good. That means I definitely won't go to the dinners and stuff. Because so we would have been giggling in the back, of yeah, and all that sort of thing. And I wonder who else is going to be there. Well, yeah, so do I. Yeah, well, I'll tell you. I'll send pictures. Yeah, I'll look like I care about my job, Ned. Unlike you. And at ITV, they're going to pay for the um, travel. The travel, yeah. Excellent. I'm just going to drive there. Are you? Yeah, it's <laughs> 800 quite k's. A long way. It's 800 k's. Wow. Yeah, and then. Yeah, right. stay there. Okay, well, yeah, I'll be in Paris. So. Oh, very good. Yeah, sorry about that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, um, yeah. So here we are at the studio, Ned, and th- thought we could go through some of my uh, cycling book collection. Well, you have got all of them, really, haven't you? I do you? have a lot of them. There was that... To kind of go back, I suppose, actually you'd know as well as I. Well, actually you were of the first wave when the cycling literature genre just kind of boomed in the 2000s, didn't it? Briefly. Well, I, Briefly, we, yeah. yeah. And then it was just books coming out all the time. We brought our first two books out I was the same year, I think. 2011. Very different books, obviously. But <laughs> yeah, I think it was the summer of 2011. I think we both published in yeah. the same summer, didn't we? Yeah. Um, that was the golden era it of was cycling the publishing. It, yeah. was, it was the golden era. Still, it still does okay cycling. Does like it? It's, yeah, but not quite to the extent that it did. Well, I guess a lot of the story's been told now, haven't they? Yeah. What, the big biographies have the been big done? big biographies. There are very few lives that haven't been told. And I think, yeah, it's true. And I think there's... It was part of that boom as well, where people were coming in, to, especially in the, the Anglo-Saxon world, were coming into the sports with no real knowledge of the history. And so... Up, me, yeah, that was me. And so they were genuine. And we were just talking about this before we started recording, how that Anglo-Saxon cycling culture are actually quite literate and kind of quite like books. And yeah. so it was a perfect sort of mashup. But I think in direct parallel to that, that initial boom of late adopters kind of coming in, it's sort of slowly... Diluted or dissipated, and all those people who are super into it feel like they probably acquired enough knowledge now of the sport. So it takes books like 1923, which are very different, yeah, still appeal to that audience, but yeah. not the classic biography of a pro cyclist, yeah, or a story about Tour de France or mountains of the Tour de France, exactly, great so, stages of the Tour de France, 
Yeah. 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 There are, I suppose at that level, there are a limited number of ideas, mm-hmm. but I, d- I don't know. And there's, still, there's still so many stories. Yeah. I you mean, just have to look a little bit further afield, I think, yeah. for the stories now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've started to write another book. Explain. Um, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to explain or should explain, but uh-huh. it's, a, it's a return to more familiar territory. Okay. I mean, I, I did, I, uh, there are ideas floating around the back of my mind about something that I might write that operates along similar lines, very vaguely to 1923, but they're not, they're half-baked still. Right. And they're not quite there and they may never get there because I, I actually, you know, I, my instinct, I enjoyed writing 1923 so much that my instinctive reach was to do something like that again. Yeah. And it wasn't there because it was, it was, it was, was quite so providential actually. Yeah. You know, it was literally yeah. a jiffy bag out of the blue that mm. arrived in my house. Mm. <laughs> Appropriately enough. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, so, uh, so I have, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm returning to more familiar territory, put it that mm. way. So I'm writing, so there aren't any jokes in 1923. The, the book I'm writing at the moment does have jokes in it. Nice. Back it does to, have jokes in it. Back to um, so, um, touch. but I kind of, I was a bit ring rusty in terms of writing the jokes. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, I've only just started writing this book and it's not going to be published for another 18 months really because summer 2025, it'll come out, but I need to deliver it this time next year. Oof. So I've got a year to write it. Um, but it was quite interesting going back to a style of writing I'd sort of moved away from. Mm. And it's so different. But uh, uh, I was a little bit ring rusty in terms of kind of like just, yeah, the, the humor. Finding the humour. Yeah. Yeah. But I have just written, I have just written an account of, um, in this book, I've written an account that I really enjoyed writing of you and me making our commentary debut. <laughs> 2015 Tour de Yorkshire. 2015 Tour de Yorkshire. The much Tour de Yorkshire. Tour de Yorkshire. Tour de Yorkshire. It me. I remember challenging, before that race started, the first edition was in mm. 2015. Mm. The last edition was in 2019. It only lasted five years. Um, but I remember challenging Christian Prudhomme about it. I'm not challenging him. I said, who came up with the, why did yeah. you call it the Tour de Yorkshire? Yeah. And he just pointed at Gary Verity. Yeah. And he went, it was his idea. I didn't want to. I didn't want to call it that, but he insisted, and then I told him it was ungrammatical, and yeah. he still insisted. <laughs> to a do Yorkshire, is it? Sure, do Yorkshire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so we 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 cherry picked a few of your enormous collection of um, cycling books just to sort of talk about. I picked off the shelves. Have you ever read that? I've read most of it. The Race Against the Stasi by Herbie Sykes. Yeah. Um, the incredible story of uh, Dieter Wiedemann, the Iron Curtain and the greatest cycling race on earth, which is, of course, the Peace, peace race. race. You didn't do the Peace Race. No, I didn't. I was just kind of, that was Milk Race, Peace Race, were kind of at the end of their glory days. Actually, I didn't stay amateur long enough yeah. to do it. I just went straight pro. Yeah. But it was the most iconic, the iconic race, obviously, of amateurs because all the Eastern Bloc couldn't turn pro. Yeah. So you had riders of pro caliber doing the peace race. Yeah. And yet European, American amateurs could go across and race and do what was equivalently a pro race in the Eastern Bloc. And it was kind of legendary. And you'd have these racers in there who were amazing, could have been the best in the world, who could never yeah. kind of go and do the Tour de France. So the peace race became iconic yeah. and kind of this hidden treasure, very much representative of the Cold War, I guess. It's kind of like 10 stages long sort of thing, Something like that, Or maybe yeah. two weeks even, I, I don't think know. it might have gone two weeks at some point. Or. And would encompass what used to be Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. um, Poland, yeah. and East Germany, normally. So already it sounds hard. 
hard as yeah, nails. Yeah, Silesian mountains yeah. and like the bo- Bohemia and yeah, yeah, and red CCCP jerseys. A lot of CCCP yeah. going on. <laughs> Super cool back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I wrote um, if you haven't if you've got the road book but haven't got the blue the little blue 1989 road book, mm. you, you really need to get it because yeah. I wrote a story in that about um, 1989, but it was about. Um, a little bit about the, what Herbie Sykes has t- touches on with the race, the brilliant book, The Race Against the Stasi, um, talks about the peace race and um, talks specifically uh, about a number of things, but about the life and career of a man who, last time I looked, was still alive and he's well into his 90s and I hope he is still alive. The greatest East German rider of all time, by far, who you've never heard of. Huh. And his name is Teve, which is a short name for Gustav. TV Schur. And he is, for that generation, you know, absolute East German sporting icon. He won the peace race a million times. Mm. Um, Won the East German national championships a million times. Never raced in the West. Because that's the thing with these as well. Those guys were literally stars in Russia and kind of, they were put on such a pedestal and treated differently. Yeah. Which I guess as well was to keep them kind of from defecting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not only did TV Schur was he kept sweet by the East German state? Mm. He became, um, eventually he stood for parliament for oh, the East wow. German, but he was like so invested in the communist uh, ethos, mm. structure, hierarchy and party that when the inevitable happened and in 1989, the, w- the war came down, mm. um, he was the last man, he was in total denial really? about the reality of it. Well, also because he'd been treated, he was getting the best of it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. Exactly that. And and to this day, I think he's still very much. Those are the glory days. Those are the glory days. Yeah. And he lives. He lives in the the tiny little um, town in which he was born, just to the west of Berlin, uh, which used to be in East Germany. Um, and uh, you know, the party gave him. A, a slightly bigger house than everyone yeah, else yeah. had and you know they had a car yeah. and all that sort of thing and I think he just lives in this and there's an amazing film called what's it called I want to say it's called Goodbye Lenin but anyway it's about um, it's about uh, a party member in East Germany in 1989 mm. or thereabouts a, a woman she's in, a, she's in late middle age and she's got adult children and she is a, conv- a, a convicted communist, you know, convinced yeah. communist, a party member, fully paid up, into the ethos and everything like that. And she bangs her head, and I can't quite remember how, but she, she bangs her head and slips into a coma. Oof. And she's in a coma, um, and while she's in a coma, the wall comes down, and, the, and her, her entire state is dismantled, all her belief oh, system, wow. yeah? And when she comes out of the coma, and she's at home, being looked after by her adult children, mm. her adult children get together and go, Mum can't ever know. <laughs> <laughs> Mum can't ever know that the world has changed outside of her room. She's going to be bed-bound for the rest of her life. But for her own sake, we oh, need to brilliant. maintain the illusion that communism is still in, in force. Uh, oh, that's genius. And so they set about, they set about, it's absolutely brilliant. It goes on for years. Stale bread coming in in the morning. Stale bread. They have to source the increasingly rare <laughs> sort of like um, tinned beans and everything, and, you know, chocolate bars that she was used oh, to awesome. that have no longer produced, yeah. you know, but so they have to scour the country to find like, you know, <laughs> and then like, obviously East German television has gone off the air. <laughs> so they need to sort of like get old videotapes and sort of like, pretend that the television is live, you know, oh, sort of thing, and then the, oh. the whole thing collapses somehow. It's a great film. Oh, God, I really recommend it. Anyway, that's the, me rambling on about the race against the Stasi by Herbie Sykes. Fall from Grace, Freddie Mertens. This was when in my, in the 1990s, when I was 
get into cycling. And, and just like those people I was describing who got into cycling in the late 2000s, uh, I just wanted to learn everything about it. And there were very few books in the 1990s about pro cycling. As I'd gone through most of them, then I found this book, Freddie Merton's Controversial and Enigmatic, His Own Story. So, so a lot of our listeners will know who Freddie Merton yeah. is. A lot won't, actually, David. But I'll it's just, worth just, yeah, I'll just read you know. the back. Just brief. In the history of cycling, no figure has ever been as controversial as the Belgian double world champion Freddie Mertens. In the last few years of his career, the wildest rumours and most sensational stories circulated about him. Mertens' name was synonymous with a mystery that had neither a beginning or end. Anyway, so when he was at his top in the 1970s, I mean, I think he, he's got the record for most stages ever won in a Grand Tour. I think at the Vuelta España, he won like 12 or 14 or something. <laughs> and so it was that kind of era where... He, the so sprinter. Right. Like we've spoken about before, Wout van Aert, yeah. if he was in the 1970s, 80s, would have won, won a Grand, Grand Tour. Tour. Freddie Mertens was like that. He was a sprinter, but he could climb in that era. He could do everything. But he was also uh, a bit of a loose cannon. And, uh, <laughs> and this book, well, the very title, Fall from Grace, he was kind of fettered as being the next Eddie Merckx and matched a lot of the performances, but was equally self-destructive. And he lost everything very quickly after his career and disappeared into a certain prolonged state of darkness and came out the other side. But it's a fascinating book because you go through and you get to see kind of just that because I didn't know anything about Freddie Mertens, because obviously in the shadow of Eddie Merckx and de Vlamink and all that sort of thing, but Freddie Mertens was considered to be the best, the next Eddie Merckx. But so he threw races, yeah. right? He was at result fixing. And yeah, all he was all over the place. And, yeah. yeah, just loads of yeah, wrong he was a proper lad. Yeah, um, but, but it was, it was a, a great book because it was a side of cycling I, I didn't know about because all the other books were the sort of romantic, the glory. And then when I read that book, there was a whole different side of professional cycling that I encountered, um, which was probably quite prolific back then because it was, it was the days of fixing races and yeah. and uh, selling races, buying races, buying teams. And <laughs> Freddie Mertens was very much uh, the doyen of that sort of thing. I should say this book might be quite hard to get hold of because it's... Um so it's, it's his autobiography. It's mm. kind of like his words, but he's worked with a young Belgian journalist called Madhu Adriens, and it's been translated into English sort of from, from the original Dutch, um, published by Ronde Publications of Hull <laughs> in like, I don't know, a, a long, quite a long time ago. So it looks almost, where is it? 1993, yeah. 30 years old. Mm. So it's probably quite a rare book. It's quite there. a rare book. Yeah. But you recommend, yeah? I do recommend it, yeah. For, but just saying that other side, of professional cycling that perhaps gets glanced over. Yeah. Um, I've picked up, well, you picked up off the shelves, actually, one of the, I think, three in total um, volumes that were produced about 10 years ago. Yeah. Of um, Lionel Burney and Ellis Bacon. Uh, their initiative to, um, to uh, produce... It's called Peloton Publishing, which is their own in-house. They self-published it, um, the cycling anthology that many of you may have. So it's, it was short bits of writing. In volume one, Samuel Apt, Ellis Bacon, Lionel Burley, Alistair Fotheringham, William Fotheringham, Daniel Freib, Rupert Guinness, David Miller, yeah. Richard Moore, the late Richard Moore, Ed Pickering, Kenny Pride, that's how you pronounce it, isn't it? Scottish writer, Owen Slot. James Start and Jeremy Whittle. A big name, some big names the, there. The, yeah, that is the... David Miller. 
What did you write the in this? Pantheon of actually, what did I write in that? Oh, you know what? I, did, I wrote a bit about training with Michael Barry. I think gone biking. Gone biking. Page seventy-six. Yeah. I'm just so I, I, it was basically because obviously I was still pro at the time. It was a winter ride with Michael Barry. If I remember correctly. Most mornings start the same way these days. Archibald wakes. <laughs> Archibald oh, yeah. wakes How old would he have been on? Oh. Archibald wakes up at seven a.m. Oh, My wife and I feed and change him. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't be doing that now, he's 12. No, no. Um, then we go down to breakfast where I have a coffee before messaging Michael Barry unless he's beaten it to me. Biking? Question yeah. mark. <laughs> this is so good. That was basic, because those were days in Girona where it was just Michael Barry. We were the only two people here in winter. Literally the only two pro cyclists. And so we would just, that was, we didn't really have groups to meet up with. So me and him would just go out on our winter rides together. It was halcyon days. But this is really, does this make you feel, about half an hour later, I'm setting off from the house to the road where his route from Girona meets mine from Cornelia. It's a nice start for both of us. And although we live almost 20 kilometers apart, we both live at the top of hills. So those first few minutes are fast and invigorating and somehow almost without fail, we seem to meet around the same point. This is remarkable. Does that make you feel slightly yeah, does, kind actually. of nostalgic for it does, I, I'd forgotten your I'd life written that by. piece. Yeah, because I mean, Michael often, well, probably once a year or something will message and um, we do now look back on those days as being so simple. Yeah. And you know, when you're in it, it's it's not simple. Yeah. And everyone's telling you it's such a simple existence. And you're like, it's not because you've got all the the internal kind of pressures and stresses and concerns about the season and your your form and your physical and mental being. But then very quickly when you come out of it, you're like, God, that was so simple. Yeah. It was just message biking and we got training and it wasn't, it was the winter, like December, January, where there were just long rides, long yeah. steady state. We'd ride out into the, the hills, stop for coffee, croissants, and Michael would just talk the whole time. And it was, <laughs> yeah, it was lovely. And uh, so, yeah, I must read that again, actually. I'd f- absolutely forgotten I'd written that. So uh, I will. Because be it'll read nostalgic. to you now like someone else wrote it. Completely. You won't remember those, those yeah. words. And, yeah. Well, it will be nice because I'm at a point now where you can look back on it with a really healthy yeah. nostalgia. Yeah. And... and it's that, that's why I think it's important to perhaps go back and revisit some of those things because those are the really the, the rose tinted. Yeah, because it, it gives you a lot of perspective as well on those were really good times, you know, and it was a privilege to have experienced them. Yeah. And the simplicity when you see Drona now, as you know, you're here. It's this cycling mecca. Yeah, and whereas back in those days, it was just Michael and I for two or three months a year. Yeah, yeah, simple days. I went for a little bit of... So we had dinner last night and I, got, <laughs> I arrived quite late in Girona because I sat in a broken train for the best part of two hours in Barcelona's Sant Station. That was weird, but... <laughs> it's never happened. It's just so weird. Yeah. We all got shepherded onto this train that was supposed to leave at, 20, at 10 to 3 and um, it didn't move for two hours. The lights periodically went out. A guard came up and down, clattering around with a fuse box. And there was no, at no point was anything explained well, to anyone. Well, they wouldn't know because it never happens. It's just so weird. Yeah. But what was really weird was that everyone just sat there patiently just, that's fine. That's the Spanish Catalan that's, that's mentality. absolutely fine. Yeah, they just chill, take two, it. Two-hour delay, and no one yeah. explaining what it is, and then it pulled off, and we all, you know, we got to Girona, hey. Yeah. But th- I was walking around um, on my way to join you for, for dinner. I was walking around, and I walked past Armstrong's old flat. Yeah. And there's something about the fact that I know, because you've pointed it out, and that we all know that that's where he used to live yeah. in the darkest of dark days. Mm-hmm. 
It's kind of remarkable, isn't, isn't it? It does need a blue plaque on it. Yeah, like it does. A little, here's the ears, the house. In a US postal logo. Yeah, and the car used to be parked under the US postal team car used to be parked in the little. Did it? Underneath. Did it? He'd really? go down for a coffee in the crappy Catalan cafe in his US postal gear. <laughs> no one cared. Yeah. Because, yeah. Different. Very different now, isn't it? Very different. And it's gentrifying. On oh, a daily, oh, weekly, hourly basis. Exponential rate. Yeah. It's just crazy. Like everywhere, but here in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Cycling Anthology was great. Three volumes were produced. I wrote a piece about, um, I think must have been for volume two, I wrote a piece about, um, I wrote two pieces for them in volume two and three. First one I wrote was about Froome. In, after his first Tour de France win in 2013, I called it The Indivisible Man. Huh. About the impossibility of knowing Chris Froome yeah getting to understand the enigma him just because he keeps you at arm's length yeah. uh, by the way he's great tick to me has he yeah because we had this idea didn't we that we need to get some like really big name hitters yeah for Never Straight so Far for the well new then. season yeah Good. so I said I'll contact Froome great tick yeah mm. I've also been great tick by Gary Imlach that's less surprising because <laughs> <laughs> I've had a great tick in going <laughs> right Eddie Merckx Eddie so this is uh Free Boss's Magnum Opus yeah. on the Cannibal. Yeah. Awesome by Mark Cavendish. Outstanding by the Times. Exhilarating by the Do Times. Have read it? I haven't actually read it, unfortunately. But you oh, have read it. Um, He's good not. delivered a no, quote for the... That um, could have just been awesome when he was asked to read it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, Free Boss and Cav have a slightly symbiotic... Yeah. And, that's, and that, that is no... Um, I should read... I must read this, actually. <laughs> because... Ironically, I think because Eddie Merckx, I think I know everything about Eddie Merckx, and sometimes those the greatest of champions are less interesting because it's just. I'm fascinated by Eddie. Yeah, I've read. I that, am, I've I read am. that one. I haven't read William. So William Fotheringham and Freebos. I don't think they knew what each other. The two, you know, yeah, two of the best parallel, wasn't most, it? You know, yeah. the, they were writing the Eddie Merckx biography at the same time for publication in the same oh, week for brutal. different publishers. And then they found out, I think, that what, yeah. what, was, what was going on. Can't remember the name of Williams. I've re- actually, I've read them both. I've read Free Bosses and they're very different takes on Eddie's life. Are they? And they're worth, yeah, you'll get a really rounded yeah. picture by reading both of them. Um, there's one bar of battery left on this. Let's, uh, I'm going to advert. press stop mm. now and I'm going to replace the batteries, okay? Because otherwise we'll lose the whole file. I am now a year into my health binge. Well, it's no longer a binge. It's just a way of life. Uh, and I'm loving it. There's a few things I do. I have got to, as I said, in my New Year's resolutions, my daily meditation, journaling. But when it comes to my body, there's a couple of things. There's my daily sport, but there's also my supplement routine. And for me, it is AG1. Uh, AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. It's super simple. It's either one scoop in some water or the travel pack, which is one serving, which I take with me on the road. Dissolves immediately into water, tastes good, looks green, looks healthy. It's a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. AG1 is raising the standard for quality in the supplement category. And I can say after a year's use, it's obviously part of many factors, but I do consider it to be the best supplement I've ever taken. I recommend it highly. Uh, You really should give it a go. And for our listeners, if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 
and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash never strays far. That's drinkag1.com forward slash never strays far. Check it out. Now, also on top of that, and this is a little bit different, Ned and I have been talking about this Flanders experience. We're going across there to watch the race, and you can come and join us. We have collaborated with Sports Tours International, and anybody who signs up to one of their Flanders packs, they have a few going on, either come to do the sportive, come to watch the race, come for the whole week. Anybody that's there will get to hang out with us, and because we're going to be watching the race on a Sunday, and doing a fireside chat on the Sunday evening. We'll be recording the podcast throughout the evening and, uh, well, actually probably more during the day during the race, but we will do a segment there and it'll be a chance to join us as cycling fans. So go to the show notes and go to Sports Tours International and every single one of those Flanders packs, well, you'll get to hang out with us on the day of Flanders and that evening. Come and be bike fans with us. Fresh batteries, a bit like putting AG1 into your body. Yes, exactly like exactly. that. Nicely linked, wasn't it? That was beautiful. Uh, Richard Moore, I haven't read this book. Sky's Limit, I haven't as well, because I was so anti-Sky at the time <laughs> that I didn't want any propaganda. Yeah. So Sky's the Limit by the late Richard Moore, British cycling's quest to conquer the Tour de France, which Richard must have brought out shortly after, I guess, the Wiggins win in 2012. Yeah. I, yeah. Have, I haven't read it, you haven't read it, so we can't talk about the book, but... Um, I miss mm. Richard a great deal. Yeah. It still blows my mind that he's gone. It's surreal, isn't it? And he's, and he's, he's the author of some of the best sports books I've ever oh, read. Oh, man. And like I, the I, Bolt I, Supremacy is just, if you haven't read The Bolt Supremacy. I was going to say exactly that. Amazing You've book. read it? I've read it, yeah. So I think that's his greatest work. I do as well. That it, kind of opened my eyes to It's so about Usain Bolt and Jamaican yeah. sprinting. And, yeah. and, and it was, Richard wrote it shortly after the London Olympics where mm. Bolt ripped the head off everybody. Yeah. And I think Richard coming from cycling had natural suspicions about Bolt. And he went Jamaican. there as an investigative journalist, yeah. really, didn't he? Yeah, went and I think he was expecting to undercover, un, uncover doping. Mm-hmm. And, and he tried really hard to, find, yeah. to do that. As far as I remember it, the conclusion that he kind of reached after several prolonged trips to Jamaica was that there is a reason yeah. why Bolt is as good as he is. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why Jamaican sprinting mm-hmm. is as good as it is. And it's called practicing. Yeah. <laughs> And coaching. And culture. And culture. Yeah. And they've got, they've historically done decades, they've had the best coaches in the world. Yeah. And they just get it. They do, totally. They're just really good at... I mean, he went to even the kind of this high school, secondary school athletics meet is bigger than the British or yeah. European championships. It's like the national tryouts yeah. for youngsters, isn't yeah, it? Like it's this wild. massive meeting that yeah. you went to. It's called Champs or something? Or? It's something crazy, but it's... Really so you book. can see culturally how it's... It is the sport, and also it's the sport to get out of Jamaica. Yep. It's the only sport that can get you out of there if you don't have the means to, to expand your horizons and yep. see a bigger future. Yep. So, yeah, no, I thought it was brilliant. But yep. It's interesting that no one's written a book about Dave Brailsford. An unofficial, because he wouldn't... No, yeah. he's not going to He's not no. gonna play ball. So you'd fascin- have to do an un- unauthorised biography. It'd be a fascinating book, because he is a fascinating man. I have heard a whisper on the publishing grapevine that somebody... Ooh. Who we both know Ooh. is actually working on that. And I'm very interested to see what comes out the other end. Oh. Um, 
I guess if you're a cycling journalist, now's the time to write it because oh, you've got yeah. no, there's no great jeopardy in no. terms of like, you're not going to get, Burning uh, he'll hate it yeah, and he'll fight it and he'll probably take you to court. Yeah. Whatever you say. Whatever. Um, but he's in football now. Also, there's a bigger audience now to mm. kind of receive it. Yeah. Yeah. Because football Interesting. fans. Interesting. Um, four more books. Well, five actually. I've picked off the shelf um, Lantern Rouge by Max Leonard, the last man in the Tour de France. Um, I read this a long time ago. Max, he, I think it published about 10 years ago. Uh, it's great because it's full of mad uh, biographies of. of through, dec- through the decades of the last man in the Tour de France, the, the Lantern Rouge and how it used to be fought over. It used to be an honour that you could monetize at the post-tour mm. criteria uh, and all yeah. that sort of thing. I think um, Maori van Zevenant's father, Wim, makes an appearance oh, as well really? because he was the Lantern Rouge <coughs> in my early memory of the Tour de France in your uh, era, repeatedly. Yeah. In the kind of 2006s. Made it his profession. Because you'll get invited to criteriums and stuff, won't yeah. you, afterwards as the Lantern Rouge? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the reason I picked that off the shelf is less that you should read Lantern Rouge, which you most certainly should, but I've just read a book by Max, his latest book. He writes really alternative books, doesn't he, Max? He's an alternative guy. Yeah. But his latest book is a work of absolute genius. I'm profoundly jealous. Oh, really? Not just of the idea that he had, but the execution and the way he writes. He's a brilliant writer. What is the book? Brilliant writer. It's called A Cold Spell, Mm -hmm. A Human History of Ice. What? Yeah. He, he, he explains in the first chapter that he's gone up for work and he's sitting in a pub in Newcastle and he's, because he's arrived somewhere too early and he's got a drink with a, um, an ice cube in it and he glances up at the television screen that's in the pub and there's like on silence, there's um, a, a, a news reporter from Sky News who's standing in front of a melting glacier <laughs> and it's a climate crisis kind of report that's going mm-hmm. on and he looks at that and then he looks down at his ice cube and he thinks ice is really weird isn't it and really important <laughs> i'm gonna write a book about all human interaction through millennia with ice that's wild before it all disappears <laughs> and um and uh, as bleak as that sounds he doesn't really dwell on the kind of total calamity of climate change mm. i mean there's a final chapter about how it is it is the glaciers are disappearing, yeah. and the ice cap is disappearing, and that's terrible. But actually, the rest of it is just replete with the most fascinating information and the most what kind of stuff that huh. you will ever like. People in the p- people producing ice in the desert two thousand years ago. Jeez. You know, a, there was a way of making ice. There were ice. The the the, the trade in ice across the Atlantic. You know, people chunk taking chunks in the nineteenth century of frozen lakes in North America and putting them on boats and taking them to Calcutta so that the, so that the British could, you know, have an ice cube in their gin and tonic sundowners wow. and paying a, a ridiculous amount of money for the, you know, That's a, wild. A just stuff like that. Um, uh, there's a bit about how Churchill was very invested in putting a lot of money behind a project in the second world war to build a supersized aircraft carrier, like 10 times the size of a normal aircraft carrier on which you could, you could, um, park, Hundreds of planes um, made out of ice. Oh, wow. Like an iceberg. Yeah. Um, t- t- that they could have just hanging around in the middle of the North Atlantic so that they could um, protect huh. the North Atlantic fleet from German U-boats. Brilliant. 
And they literally, they spent years trying to develop these super ice tankers. Oh, wow. And obviously, it didn't work. It's yeah. a stupid idea. But I love it. It's, honestly, it's a great book. Okay. Yeah, A Cold Spell by, by Max Levin. Jens Vox. I don't know why I picked this off the shelf. Just no, I don't know why. Funny, well, probably because it's Jens Vox. Um, the uh, innovative title, Shut Up Legs, <laughs> My Wild Ride On and Off the Bike. So this was in that era of, you know, biographies. And Jens is, and I don't know, it's weird actually how... He was so, he's such a populist pro cyclist in the sense that that's kind of now fading with time. Yeah. You know, he, he was kind of everywhere at one point. Yeah. And the shut, shut up legs kind of tagline. I mean, I remember Jens, he was on, because he's from East Germany, isn't he? Jens. He's from, yes, I want to say, yes, he's from Berlin, but I think you're right. Yeah, he was from I think he was. And, so. he, and he was kind of last of those sort of East Germany sort of vibe hardmen yeah. who just got the job done. And uh, but in stark contrast to that, has one of the warmest extrovert characters you can. Whenever we see him at the Tour de France, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, he'll just be. I think the fans are kind of. Can you stop talking, please? <laughs> you know, most <laughs> most pro cyclists are kind of sighing and sort of niceties, and then get out of there. Whereas Jens will just go deep into whatever's just happened and be talking about everything. He's got no filter. No filter whatsoever. You see him coming into the restaurant. You're like just trying to avert your gaze. <laughs> Because if he comes, yeah, because if he comes across like that's it. But yeah, I mean, Jens is uh, like one of those kind of last big characters of that era of pro cycling. I think yeah. it'd be interesting. I haven't read it because I know Jens so well. Yeah, um, and I don't. You were never on the same team, were you? We were never on the same no. team, but uh, we raced a lot together. You must have been in a few breaks with him. Yeah, I was, and it was horrible because <laughs> you just go for everything. Yeah, and still rip your legs off at the end. <laughs> but yeah, he's. Uh, He's one of those, it probably would be a quite interesting now to read, to get a bit of his background, because I don't know much about his background. But proper guerrier, as he, they say. Don't you think he squeezed everything Every, out of oh, his career? Oh, my God, everything. No, no, you, could, you couldn't come to the end of what he did. And no. Can he have record when he was like 42? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just because the rules changed, he was on a team that could facilitate it. Yeah. Brilliant. What yeah. a brilliant way to end. But yeah, no, sadly, he's kind of fading slightly out of the public eye now, isn't he? He still works for the Americans, doesn't he? I think. No. Does he not? No, he doesn't. No. Lost gig with NBC. Did he? Mm-hmm. So who does that now on the motorbike? Christian. Christian. Vanderbilt. Yeah. Maybe. And they don't have a kind of man on the ground doing... I think oh, Christian will do yeah. that. Um, yeah. So I don't know what he's doing. Well, now. I hope for his sake he's still got the contract with Kinder Eggs. Oh, yeah. Just because of the uniform. Just do it. Just cruising <laughs> around. Uh, Rendalero. Oh, Rendalero. So this is um, Rendalero's Olympic gangster, the legend of Jose Beat, cycling champion, fortune hunter, and outlaw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, absolutely brilliant book. Um, and and, um, and uh, uh, hitherto, I mean, it's, Matt published this book about 10 years ago, but a story that hadn't been told until that point. Um, and typical of Matt, just kind of levels of research forensic plum you know all sorts of depths that you would never have imagined yeah uh, matt got uh, matt matt's book about alejandro valverde came out this summer green yes bullet, that green he managed bullet. to get a piece about on the I telly know. just uh they just handed it to him that was funny <laughs> fought hard for that didn't he he really fought for it yeah 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 um, <laughs> and, and he was because it's about valverde so it was hard Edit. I mean, it's a great book. Yeah. It's hard editorially to justify in the 2023 Tour de France coverage because, for one, Alejandro Valverde wasn't in the race because he retired. <laughs> so Matt was, and it wasn't an obvious kind of like. Well, for a start, Alejandro Valverde never won the Tour de France. Right. 
So Matt had to find a hook or a reason why there was some relevance to this is brilliant. basically him advertising his book on ITV yeah. for want of a better word. Um, and in the end, what was it? It was something it, about... He'd finished second on a climb. The last Spanish... Ah! Peo Bilbao won a stage. Yeah. And it was the day after Bilbao won a stage and Matt said something like, Spanish success at the Tour de France has become increasingly or decreasingly or decreasing has been decreased Pay about one becoming the first Spanish rider to win a stage since Valverde no surely not no I don't know no no because Luis Leon Sanchez has since has he yeah but there was some there was some really tenuous hook yeah it was super tenuous no it was Pay Bilbao was so and so in GC and could potentially finish on the podium of the Tour de France. Oh, that was and it. if he does that, yeah. he will be the first Spanish rider since Alejandro Valverde <laughs> to finish on the podium of the Tour de France. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Peo Bilbao didn't. didn't come close. It was Adam Yates again, wasn't it? Oh, Obviously. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it. green yeah. bullet. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then lastly... Well, I've got two books, actually. One by you. Yeah. I want you to do yours because I want you to okay. read some German for Okay. <laughs> well, I want to just find this bit. In, so this is a book I wrote. This is when you're harking back to your earlier style Just of writing. Care, David Miller. Yeah. So this is, I wrote this book all about, this is, there's a chap called Miller. <laughs> oh, is there? Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, 101 Damnations. David Miller. So this is about the 2014 Tour de France. Ah. What you weren't selected for. Oh, yeah. Right. The one that started... Yeah. And it says Miller, and there's a little um, epigraph at this chapter that says, I'm not designed for this. My legs can't do this. Oh, I know what that's about. Hang on. So David Miller was not there to ride his bike, which made a change. Instead of hurting himself for three weeks in the name of sport, and to his immense chagrin, he would like me using the word, I suspect, he had been deselected by his team at the last minute. This was a considerable blow to a rider not necessarily known for his stoicism and graceful acceptance of setbacks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is quite awkward reading this out in front of me. Hold on, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's the bit. We sat down to lunch. Uh, right. There's the bit that, about the filming we did on. Um, wait a minute. Uh, you remember this? Uh, here it is. Here it is. <coughs> David Miller stands at something over six foot two inches. Is that right? Yes, yeah, six foot three. I am something approaching five foot ten. Add to that the four-inch differential. Add to that four-inch differential the extra two inches that Miller's chapeau lent him, and he appeared giant alongside my laughable stature. In cutlery terms, why not? He was a fork next to my teaspoon. <laughs> Add to the basic mathematics of his hauteur. Again, I use a French term as this is David Miller we're talking about. His absurd skinniness. Then the overall effect was of a man on a badly adjusted television set. <laughs> to understand what I mean, try watching a widescreen film scrunched into an old 4 by 3 television. Everyone looks like David Miller. <laughs> as if they'd been turned on one side and left between the pages of a heavy stack of books, like a pressed flower. You get my point. He was tall. After York, do you remember this? Yeah. After York, we stopped en route to take in the splendor, the splendor of Jenkin Road. Oh, yeah. Do this was that. the steep climb just a few kilometers from the finish line in Sheffield, which ran through the heart of a 1940s housing estate. Famously, at one point, a few hundred meters from the summit, the gradient is so unkind that the pavement, or sidewalk, as I mysteriously and somewhat humiliatingly found myself saying on air that evening, has been fitted with a handrail so that you can pull yourself up in... Uh, up it, Sir Edmund Hillary style, without the Sherpas. 
We parked near Spass and walked up the hill. Liam and Jim striding ahead, carrying all the equipment. Me and Miller lagging behind until even I got bored of keeping up his relaxed pace and dropped him. <laughs> I'm not designed for this. My legs can't do this. I heard him complain as I continued up the climb. At one point, I looked back to take in his languid form, zigzagging up the hill to lessen the gradient. He stopped briefly, took off his trilby, wiped the sweat from his brow, and then continued his ascent. Lining the road was an array of houses, some of which had touchingly embraced the occasion, some of which still weren't sure how to react, and others that had double-locked the front doors, drawn their curtains, and turned their backs on the whole bloody inconvenience. But mostly the residents of Jenkin Road, an unpretentious community of Sheffield people, had decided to get behind the race. Tables had been dragged out onto the pavement, kids flitted around with chalk and balloons, bunting was going up from lamppost to lamppost, and a few of the houses had even been decorated with a rash of bright red circular stickers, as if they'd succumbed to German measles late in life. Homemade banners welcomed the race in a dozen different ways um blah 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 <laughs> jenkin road there you go there you go i remember yeah. that vividly and the final book yeah so i want you to read so i've given you the german version yes. of racing through the dark yes because Race, this is racing through the dark yeah because i i want to hear or yeah. go on vollblutrennfahrer um, von david miller meine zwei leben als radprofi i want you to read is it, there it is i, I want to hear what this sounds like in german the somerset Morn quote Oh, they put it in English. Ah. Oh. They put it in English. They didn't translate it. That's interesting. Somerset more on the razor's edge. Yeah. Read it out. It is very difficult to know people. For men and women are not only themselves, they are also the region in which they are born, the city apartments or the farm in which they learnt to walk, the games they played as children, the old wise tales they overheard, the food they ate, the schools they attended, the sports they followed, the poets they read, and the God they believed in. It is all these things that have made them what they are, and these are the things that you can't come to know by hearsay. You can only know them if you have lived them. W. Somerset Maugham, The Razor's yeah. Edge, 1943. That's a great quote. I know, because I thought cause that, was the re- that was in many ways the reason I wrote the book, because at the time I was just forever vilified, rightfully so, and I thought, well, you don't know the full story. So kind of wanted to read the book so you could actually live it and see what it was like and make your own mind up from that. And I, I'd come across that quote read when I was reading Razor's Edge, and I thought, and it really hit home to me. And I thought that's what. Why is the book called Razor's Edge? Um, I can't remember. It's a beautiful Not book. It's one of his most. I think it's the only book where Somerset Maugham actually is a character in the book. Wow. And some of the di- there's a character in there called Jerry, who's this spiritual sort of American who's come across this like 1920s, 1930s yeah. Europe, and it's. It's just the most beautiful book because Jerry lives in the fringe of society, comes from a well-off background. And he's written the book because Somerset Maugham was a playwright originally. The dialogue in there is just insane. Yep. And there's one chapter so where it's Jerry, yep. Jerry just talking about, his kind of you see his transi- transition as he's coming in and out of people's lives. And I think there's somewhere in the last third where he talks about his new outlook on life. And it's basically a whole chapter of him just talking. And it's kind of probably I must reread it actually because it's it's like spiritual enlightenment yeah this Jerry's going off on his journey and I suppose Razor's Edge is about the fact I can't remember what the reason for the title was it's probably the Razor's Edge of society it's kind of how do you kind of tread that line yeah of kind of being in it or being out it yeah and uh so yeah it's a brilliant book your um German edition of Racing in the Dark Sorry, Racing Through the, the Dark. I always get that one. Racing Through the Dark is um, called Vollblutrennfahrer, which is actually a very clever... I mean, it's nothing mm. to do with Racing Through the Dark, and mm. they've just gone a different yeah. route. 
Um, uh, uh, as you can probably guess, it means, but it's a play on words, like you pointed yeah. out. It's vollblut, it means mm. full-blooded. Mm -hmm. It also alludes to, you know, blood. Yeah. Um, but also pure blood. So mm. like a thoroughbred. Thoroughbred, yeah. So it's full-hearted, you know, um, slightly suspicious, and thoroughbred, and Renfara is racer. Mm. It's very clever. Um, and it starts like this. Biritz, den 22. Juni 2004. Es ist früher Morgen. Ich habe gedöst. Ich öffne die Augen. Which means, let's have a look at what, exactly what you wrote in English, how this book starts. 22nd of June, 2004, Biritz. It is early morning. I have been dozing. I open my eyes. And so the story begins. So that was our little um, literary ramble yeah. in Girona. There you go. I've got to catch a train now to Madrid. Good luck, man. Um, and I will, I've got a week's work in Madrid. Mm. I will report back the next time we pod. I'm excited. what I did in Madrid. I am very excited to hear. Because you're quite excited. I'm really excited. I got, excited. I got a little demo yesterday. Yep. And I'll be honest with you, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 